0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, all you wonderful, wonderful F1 fans, not only in Canada, but around the world. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you're hearing my voice, that can only mean two things. One, my name is Kelsey, and two, you are listening to the newest episode of F101. And as always, we're going to start off this episode with the hot topics. This is everything you need to know in the world of F1 this week. The FIA has officially come out to approve the Andretti Corporation application to become the 11th team in Formula One for either 2025 or 2026. So they're halfway there. But you're thinking, but Kelsey, the main governing body has approved the Andretti people to become the newest team. What are they waiting for? Well, The way they have everything set up, which I think is fairly fucked up in this case, is that the FIA have to approve them, and now the Formula 1 teams have to approve the new application as well, which means you need not a majority, but you need all 10 teams to agree to have you come in to Formula 1. Now, this shouldn't be a general problem for most people, but when you consider the fact that when you come in as an 11th team, all of a sudden you're sharing sponsorship rights, you are sharing prize money, you're sharing all this kind of stuff. The current 10 teams are going, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. Well, I'm not going to make as much. So I demand compensation from the new team to make up for what I'm just losing. And somehow this makes sense to the FIA and F Formula One. So before Andretti had applied, the, we'll call it refund fee for a team, It was like $200 million between 10 teams. Okay, that's fine. You know, it was supposed to be a slight deterrent to some teams that, let's go back to and think about Jaguar back in the day. It's to prevent things like a team like Jaguar to come in, pay the fee, get everything organized, and then fail as a team and leave within three years. I understand the reasoning behind it. That makes sense. You want to make F1 a... Uh, not only profitable, but you want to make it consistent, you want to make it professional, you want to keep the amateur teams that don't really bring anything to the table out. Okay, I understand that. So Andretti comes in, and outside of the US, the Andretti Racing name holds a ton of history behind it, just in the racing world in general. But we'll save that for another episode. But it also carries a lot of From what I've been able to discover, a lot of unmitigated hatred and disdain, especially in the European world of motor racing. They hate the Andretti name. And I don't quite understand why. They are boastful Americans. Okay, that's fine. You mean you be as loud as you want as long as you have the performance behind them. They don't consider Andretti to be professional enough for Formula One, which I don't fucking understand. For the amount of history they have in motorsport, and there was an Andretti in Formula 1 back in the day, and he was quite successful. So I don't see where they're coming from. So what they decided to do, instead of just saying no, is that they've moved this reimbursement fund up. They've moved the goalpost from $200 million to to over $600 million that you have to buy in. It's like you put in a pot and it gets dispersed amongst the 10 teams. Definitely, that would be a barrier that would kill any other team application. Andretti didn't even blink. They're like, okay, got it. We sent you the money. It's in you know, it's in escrow. It's in your account. Disperse it when you need it. Oh, and by the way, we've got Cadillac as a manufacturer partner too. So they are literally pulling out the biggest guns they have in the U.S. And even still at this point, seven, eight, nine teams out of the ten, just like we don't want Andretti. But at this point, they can't say no. They're in a position where Andretti has filled out all the paperwork. They've passed all the central background checks to make sure you've got the money for the facilities and the development and paying staff. And you have the staff and you've got all your ducks in a row. Andretti's ducks were in a row months ago. This has gone on long, much longer than it needed to be where Andretti's got the money. They've got the name. They've got the organization. They're ready to go. So now the FIA is like, okay, so you've passed all this stuff. Now you've got to convince the F1 teams that you can come in. And the F1 teams, like I said before, they're like, hey, it's gone from 200 to 600 million. Andretti's like, okay, off to the side, ready to go. So what are we waiting for? At this point, in my opinion, they need to bring Andretti in. He, he is the door that needs to be open to the U.S. and North American market. We all know Americans love their motorsport. GP, NASCAR, IndyCar. In Canada too, ton of people watch NASCAR, IndyCar, GP Racing, which is motorcycle racing, and F1. You want to open that door, you have to bring Andretti in. The only stipulation which kind of makes sense, not stipulation but concern that kind of makes sense to me, is that they would be 100% 100 based in the U.S., which is fine. Logistically, though, when you're traveling around the world, it will make Andretti shipments and makes their operating costs more expensive than everybody else. Majority of the teams are based in Europe, if not every single team. the, uh, The main manufacturing building and their main research and development is in the U.K. because it's cheaper, because it's a shorter distance from wherever they are to wherever they need to be. Andretti said they will be 100% American owned and based, which means everything they have will be in the States again, which is totally fine. If you've got the infrastructure and you've got everything set up and built, more power to you, fill your boots, let's go. But some pundits are saying that because it's going to cost Andretti more that he may ask for reimbursement or figure out a way to be reimbursed for his additional cost. Now they're just stabbing in the dark, hoping they find something, and they're just nitpicking at this point. If you don't bring Andretti in, I think this will 100% prove that Lewis Hamilton's statement of cash is king not only will be correct, but you will just see how greedy these F1 teams are. Because they will be losing a percentage of their earnings from main prizes and sponsors. Okay, that does suck. You're losing money. But teams like Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes, McLaren, stop bitching. You make more money than any other F1 team out there. you got the cash. You've got the disposable income. Andretti will still be on the cap cost like everybody else. You just don't want to share. This is essentially the definition of the old boys club. They don't want to bring in somebody new that is a legitimate competitor if and when the F1 teams approve the Andretti team to come in, Andretti's not going to be in the back of the pack. It's still going to be Haas. It's still going to be Alpharetari. It might even be Salva slash Audi at that point. Andretti will come in guns blazing, ready to win, ready to take points. So for them to come back and say, well, we don't want him to be a backmarker team, he's not going to be a backmarker team. And these are all the things that the F1 association is coming out to make an excuse on why they don't want Andretti in. But at the same time, Andretti has so much public support that he's put himself in a position and he's put the F1 committee in a position where they can't say no. Like I said, if they do, they will look to be the greediest bunch of owners that ever existed. You don't want to play because you're not going to, you don't want them to play because you're not going to make as much money. Tough shit. That's what competition is all about. The F1 teams would rather have Andretti come in and buy an existing team. He doesn't want to buy a fucking existing team. If he wanted to, he would have months ago. He would probably already have one. Audi wouldn't be in because it would be the Andretti team that would have bought Sauber. Um, It wouldn't have been... Williams probably wouldn't exist right now if Andretti wanted to buy Williams. He would have bought them a year or two ago. Or there would have been news that This will be Williams last year because they're getting bought by the Andretti team and they'll no longer exist. He has that option. He's got the financial backing to do it. He just wants his own team from start to finish. The Andretti name does not fuck around when it comes to competition in motorsport. They do everything to the utmost. From the very beginning to the very end, they want to win. They've got the caliber. They've got the staff. They've got the research and development time and money to be proper competitors out of the gate. I think the FIA needs to. I don't want to say intervene because this would be a, absolutely abysmal for the for F1. But somehow the FIA or the president, somebody needs to step in and essentially tell them, "Hey, keep your reimburse, reimbursement fund at like 600, 800 million Even if they went up to eight hundred million, Andretti has deep enough pockets that he would be able to pay that. You're like, just pick a number, make it reasonable, let him buy in, and just move on." It's going to be better for everybody else. There's a Concord agreement in F1 where they can have up to 13 teams. They can have up to 26 drivers. But at the same time, if it's this much effort to get an established name, an established company that is ready to go, that will give proper competition, if there's this much red tape and this much political bullshit and bitching and whining and just overall dragging your feet, it's definitely 100% going to deter any other team to even think about coming in. The FIA approved Andretti's application for a reason. It was the Andretti team, and there was three other teams on top of that. One would—it was uh, Tech, which is an established F2 team that wanted to move up to F1, and they even said no to them because you don't have whatever, the infrastructure, you don't have the money, whatever the case may be, because they never tell you, they only approved Andretti. And that is for a reason. Cash is king. Bring in the American team and you will get that cash. Stop complaining. Extra rights, more viewers, more sponsorships. It's never a bad thing. Next topic, uh, Daniel Ricardo back in the news. He is not making Qatar this weekend. He is still spending a little bit more time in the simulation, getting his mind, body, wrist, race ready. He will be back for the Circuit of Americas, though. He will be back for Coda, which in my opinion is the best decision they could possibly do because I mean Coda is Daniel Ricardo's race. Whether it's a successful day on the track or a successful day off the track, he is a crowd favorite. He is the face of Formula One when it comes to the circuit of America's. I do believe he'll be the face of Vegas when they get there as well. So update on him. His wrists are or his wrist is healing quite well. Uh, his doctors say in the F1 has announced, but he will be back for the Circuit of Americas, which is the next coming race. So hopefully we'll be able to see him succeed when he comes back. And a little bit of a side note before we move on to qualifying. Uh, It has been official that Apple is in talks with the FIA and Formula One that they want to start or they want to buy the rights for broadcasting starting in 2025, eventually having 100% uh, ownership of all viewing rights by 2030, um, Apple has seen the benefits of formula one cost-wise and they see how popular it is and they see that it's not going to go anywhere. I don't know how I feel about this. I am not an Apple subscriber. I don't have an iPhone. I don't have a Macintosh laptop, anything like that. I do not subscribe to the Apple, you know, way of living essentially. So I'm kind of torn. I I kind of hope it doesn't go through just for the fact that I feel like if Apple gets the viewership rights and they get 100% of the rights that all of a sudden Formula One is definitely not going to be as accessible to everybody as it is right now. For example, in Europe, Sky Sports shows Formula One for free. Kind of like when we have TSN here, you don't have to buy a separate package to watch Formula One unless you want to buy F1 TV, which I have. You can watch Formula One races on TSN, where I believe I had this good feeling that if Apple comes in and they have, they own all the distribution rights, and they own all the broadcasting rights, that unless you have Formula One TV you will have to subscribe to whatever platform Apple decides to put it on, that it will disappear from mainstream mainstream TV, which I think will definitely hinder Formula One, opposed to grow from it. But this deal is not set to take in for at least another couple years if the FIA and if Formula One even approves the bid, and it's some ungodly number, like we're talking in the billions of price tags that Apple will pay for the distribution rights and the viewing rights. Um, but it is not part of the merchandise rights, so this is just how you watch it. But there's a couple years before the contract is up, so we will see what happens from here on out, but something to look forward to, or look out for at least. And that there, folks, is everything you need to know in the world of Formula One this week. Let us move on to qualifying Friday morning. Again, this is the fourth and last sprint weekend of the year, and it is tuning up to be one of the more interesting sprint weekends. Essentially for two main reasons, weather and track. We have not been to Qatar since 2021. Since then, they have redone the entire race surface, which is great. It's brand new, nice and smooth. That's perfect. Unfortunately, on top of that, they've only run a handful of MotoGP races on the tarmac. No Formula One, no supercar series, nothing along that line, which means it is very oily. It is very new. And there's not nearly as much traction as you would have on an established circuit. Let's say Coda, Monza, Spa, anything like that. So I don't want to say it's oily, but it's slicker than it needs to be. Uh, combined with the weather, the weather is generally nice. There's not a whole lot of rain, if anything. But we're talking track temps of 42 degrees Celsius. And then throw sand on top of that because they're in the desert. This is good. This makes for a very, very, very interesting qualifying not only for the sprint, but for the actual race. Adding on to the fact that they redid the track as well, they didn't necessarily change the layout of the track, but what they've done is they made some of the corners not as deep. So when you're turning, for instance, let's say you're going down the street and you need to turn right, the corner and the apex is not as wide as it used to be. It's a much sharper turn. So a lot of these drivers have to be aware of this. And a lot of these guys... I have a little bit of trouble figuring this out, but let's get right into it. Friday morning qualifying, they only had one hour of practice, which was a dismal hour for them. High winds, lots of sand. At some point, uh, Carlos Seitz had mentioned that his dad would have done very, very well on this track. A little bit of background, uh, Carlos Seitz's dad is a very well-renowned rally car driver, so he knows how to drive in sand and all kinds of, extreme weather conditions and he made a comment that his dad would have done very very well in this weather um it really caught a lot of people out especially for the fact that you're still learning a race or you're still learning a track it's changed and you still need to go as fast as you possibly can for qualifying uh a lot of track limits in q1 a lot more than i thought there would be at this point in the year you know you're coming back to a track that 90 percent of these guys have driven before with a few small tweaks. You would think, now this is coming from a regular go around the town kind of driver. I'm not a professional, I'm not an amateur driver. I just drive to get to work and home. That's it. But you would think these professionals would be able to ascertain, problem solve, and move forward with these small changes a little bit faster than they needed to. A ton of track limits were hit in Q1. And that can only mean one thing is coming. It's a very confusing day. It's a very busy day for the stewards. And the standings are not always the standings by the time we're done. Besides track limits, it was a fantastic qualifying. Super fast, super clean, no crashes. Um, Ferrari. it, It seemed like Ferrari decided that they were racing and it wasn't just qualifying. There was a couple of instances where they're coming across almost as interfering with the car behind them, but not quite. They're just keeping it fast enough where it's like, okay, okay, this is how we're doing it today. Let's go. Ferrari, super fast as always. It was really, really good to see. Uh, Bottom five, no surprises when it came to this track and the experience and the history of these drivers, really no surprise at all. It was unfortunate to see some of them that may have been on a qualifying streak be out as early as they have been but that being said you know it's a learning curve for everybody bottom five let's start from 16th to 20th logan Sargent, uh 17th lance stroll we're going to get to him in a second 18th uh liam lawson 19th kevin magnuson and 20th joe guanyu liam lawson i was really hoping he was going to do better than he did he did have a couple of lap times deleted which kind of set him behind and the only reason why it set it behind, set him behind was in any other track, depending on how many track limit violations there are, if you get your track time deleted, you generally know about halfway through your next lap. So we're talking minutes. Some of these guys were doing three, four five laps after and then figuring out they had track times deleted just because there were so many in a short amount of time. So a lot of these guys were thinking they made it, but they learned very quickly that just because I got my track time doesn't necessarily mean that is my track time. Uh, unfortunately for Liam Lawson, that was his situation today. Super confident. Car was on rails. He did very, very well. He'd never driven this track before. So learning as you go, I would still give him 10 out of 10, even though he was in the bottom three out of the entire race. 17th, Lance Stroll. The baby. The hissy fit the toddler of Aston Martin, and in my opinion, of Formula One. If you have a bad weekend, you own up you have a bad weekend. Lance Stroll, and I know I've been hard on him, but I've been hard on him for a reason. He's having another bad weekend, and he's starting to get frustrated. Understandable, we all have these bad weekends. Not all of us are on international television driving multi-million dollar cars, and we have a bad weekend, granted, but everyone still has a bad weekend. Lewis Hamilton has had it. Max Verstappen has, has it. Has had it. Alex Albon, Hulkenberg. You can name pretty much any and every F1 driver has had a bad weekend, and they always bounce back from it, whether better or worse. Either it goes really, really well, or it goes really, really bad when you try to make up for it. Well, Lance Stroll is starting to get into the really, really bad aspect of it because he's out in seventeenth. Okay, fighting the car the whole time. It's not necessarily like it wasn't set up right. I mean. Fernando Alonso made it in the top 10, spoiler alert, so why can't Stroll? But his demeanor and his attitude, you can tell he is just over it. But he doesn't know how to handle it. Watching him get eliminated is sad enough. But then you see the childish actions from him on international television is embarrassing. Not only to see a professional act like that, and I know professionals are humans; we all have our moments, but to see him act like that is embarrassing, and it's embarrassing to say that he's our Canadian representative on the grid. He takes his wheel off, he throws it across the car, and he's super mad. I'm like, you're expecting him to like start crying and stomping his feet. His personal trainer, his friend, his engineer is trying to talk to him afterwards, be like, hey. Normally, it's words of encouragement. Hey, you know, take a breath. We'll talk about this in the back. He is one step away from pushing him out of the way. He's so upset. And he's so angry and meh, man, meh, meh. Okay. Bad reaction in a moment. Maybe you give the guy a little bit extra time to just breathe, think through, calm down, focus on the sprint, which is the next day, the sprint qualifying. And then it comes to the interview. And... About 90% of the broadcasters couldn't broadcast what he put out. He's standing there all indifferent and pissed off. I think he says fuck about six or seven times, and then he just walks off. It's like, dude, if you're having a bad day, okay, you have a bad day. Suck it up. You're a professional. Stop looking like you're going to cry or that you want daddy's help, and move forward. You're a professional. And this, to me, in my opinion, has... With that final nail in the coffin that I don't think, even though he's daddy's son, and that's why you have a contract, that I don't think Lance Stroll is going to be around next year. He's losing so many points. He's losing so many races. He's making all unforced errors upon himself. 90% of the time. Granted, it is racing and shit happens. But anything that happens to Lance Stroll, 9 times out of 10, he's doing to himself. It's not another driver. It's not a circumstance. It's him. It's him being impatient or it's him making a wrong decision. It's him, in my opinion, overcompensating for what he can't do. Think of it this way. I got this analogy. Think of it this way. Let's say you hire somebody and you read their resume and it reads amazing. It's fantastic. But it's really, really short. But you take a gamble on him because his resume reads so well. That is Lance Stroll and Aston Martin. He did really well when he was younger at the beginning of his F1 career. He wasn't blowing the doors off of races, but he was being consistent. He was being good. He was getting points. He was being reliable. But then as it goes on, you're like, does he actually have these kind of qualifications? And why is he still around? Why is he still around? But then when dad's your general manager, of course you're going to stick around because you don't fire a family. Except in this case, when the son is costing the, mon- the company more money than he's earning for the company, it's time to let him go. Lawrence Stroll, let him go. Buy out his contract. He's not that expensive. He's less than $10 million a year. Take that $10 million, Buy someone who doesn't have a seat for next year. I don't know. Someone like uh, Liam Lawson? I don't know. Might be a good suggestion right there. Q1's done. We're going into Q2. Uh, more of the same. These guys' track limits are astonishingly high right now. Same corners. We're talking corners 5, 12, 13, and 15. These are the corners where you have the biggest pull, and this, they, this is where they brought them in. And we're talking like they brought them in like 30 inches. Like it's not a massive difference, but it's just enough where these guys who are starting to hit more and more track violations which are putting some big names in this case out in Q2 that you really wouldn't expect. The rest of the track is fantastic. The rest of their lap is amazing, except for this one section. The adjustment from the drivers in qualifying, you can see starting to happen. Some guys are picking up faster than others. The weather is fantastic. The wind has died down just a little bit, but we're still talking like 26 kilometer an hour winds. There's not nearly as much sand on the road. But the road is still very slick, which means there's a ton of oversteer all of a sudden. It's they don't have any grip in certain parts of the track in the rear tires. The fronts were good. The backs all of a sudden just because of that torque and because it's so fucking hot on that track, it's almost like it's too hot for the tires. The tires can't keep up with the degradation, which is bad for tires, but good for the track because the more rubber you get on the track. The more traction you have, the less oily it is. But at the same time, when you're pushing these cars this fast, if you're losing that kind of traction, it's just a bad recipe or it's an easy recipe for some really bad situations to happen. No drama, which is nice because these guys are hauling ass. Uh, Bottom five, 11th through 15th. Yuki Sonoda is 11th, just missing out by seven thousandths of a second, unfortunately for him. That seems to be the trend more often than not for him this season as he's he's almost there. He is almost, almost there. He seems to be taking it well. A little bit of frustration this weekend just because he knows how close he is and how close he needs to be to continue on to Q3. Uh, 12th and 13th respectively. 12th is Carlos Seitz. 13th is Checo Perez. 14th is Alex Albon. 15th, Nico Halkenberg. Obviously, the two big names out. 12th and 13th. Carlos Seitz and Checo Perez, they put in respectable lap times. It was good. They were in the drop zone anyways. Both Sites and Perez put in just smoking lap times last minute as everyone normally does. You try to get as many laps in as possible, but this is where the track limit monster tilts its head yet again. They make it around the track. They're super good. All of a sudden, about two minutes later, they get the, the notification the team does. That both guys have track violations. And it kicks them down to 12th and 13th. respectively. Is it their fault? Is it not their fault? Yes and no. By this point in Q2. You should know where you need to let off a little bit more. And where you need to push it. And these guys are just pushing it the whole time. It's entertaining to watch. It's also ridiculously heartbreaking as well. Q3. Oh my god was it fast. But more track time violations we're talking five guys with track time violate or track limit violations I should say two of which drastically change how the end of qualifying happens especially during the interviews it just doesn't happen very often but we're going to get into it right now qualifying time itself again these guys are super fast they're super close but it was clean they're on track no one hits the gravel super fast great times Piastri Third, or sorry, Piastri. By the time everything was said and done, Piastri's second was fantastic. He is hauling Lando Norris again. Top three, just killing it. These guys in McLaren now, in my opinion, wholeheartedly are coming into their own at the end of the 2023 season, and they will be a team to be reckoned with in the 24 season. Mark my words, this will not be a cakewalk for Mercedes and for Ferrari for second and third respectively. We'll see how Red Bull does if they continue on with their winning ways for a fourth season. But as of right now, McLaren, in my opinion, with their consistent speed and their honest driving success and the success of their upgrades, they're getting these points in these places not by someone crashing up, but they're getting it by merit come 2024 they will be, in my opinion, a top three team. They will go from seventh or eighth in the constructors championships, respectively, when they first started. And I'm considering now them in 2023 top five, even though the points may not show it by the end of the season. They are a top five team at this point. If they were driving like this at the beginning of the season, easily they're in that conversation. They're in the top five, if not fighting for the top three position. Track times are super low. A lot of track violations, again, like I had said. And it comes down for post-interview and last lap drama. So let's get into it. The top 10, as it finished, Max was first. Oscar Piastri was second. Russell Hamilton, third and fourth. Uh, I believe, oh, sorry. No, it was Piastri in second, Norris in third, Hamilton in fifth, Alonzo Leclaire sixth and seventh, Gasoline 8, Acon 9, Botas 10. Okay. Last minute heroics from Lando Norris. He's got this time. He's got it. He nailed it. He was having issues on and off for qualifying. A lot of track times deleted, but he was able to come back, get that time and kill it. Unfortunately, the track monster lifted its head once again. Track violation. Last lap. No time. He goes from 3rd all the way down to 10 that was the difference and it was less than a half a second he goes from third to tenth, and you're going no no like mclaren you guys were just front row second row lockout this would have been amazing but you got piastri in there piastri is pushing max to the limit making him work for it at the end of every qualifying at the end of every race you always talk to the top three drivers. How is the track? How are you feeling? Where's the car going? What do you think about tomorrow? Blah, blah, blah. Those kind of questions. Well, mid-interview, and they always start first, second, third. In this case, they started third. They started talking to the person in third place. And they're talking to Piastri. And mid-interview, mid-interview, the reporter's talking, they're going, oh. Oh, and this is live. I'm hearing that you've had a track time violation. Your time has been deleted. You are no longer third. You've been bumped to sixth. It's like, no, no. How could you do it? You've been bumped from second. Yes. Second or third to sixth. And you're going, no, how could this happen? He had such a good race. To Oscar Piastri's credit, whomever is training him to talk to the media is doing an amazing job or it can just be his personal reaction he played it calm he played it cool he was collected he finished the interview going how the track was how the race was and the interviewer asked her so how do you feel about this getting you losing your track time in your position and it was the best honest answer he's like well it's been happening all evening i was just kind of crossing my fingers and hoping it wasn't me it was the best kind of reaction you could possibly have gotten from him in q3 It's super unfortunate for him. He would have been in the front row at the start of the race. It it would have been fantastic for him. But taking out the fact that he got his track time deleted for both Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri, they are going to be a force to reckon with on Sunday when it comes to race day. They are just, they're fast, they're consistent, they're going to give people problems. So the revised top 10 after these penalties were handed out Max is 1st, Russell is 2nd, Hamilton is 3rd, Fernando Alonso is 4th, Leclerc is 5th, Piastri is 6th, Gasly 7th, Alcon 8th, Bottas ninth, and Lando Norris 10th. Now, this definitely sets up for a very interesting sprint shootout on Saturday morning. Rules, when it comes to the 4th and last sprint weekend this weekend, Q1 is on hards, Q2 is on mediums, Q3 is on softs. With the track as it is now, this is definitely going to make this an even more interesting shootout. Especially with the track violation monster. Traditionally, when you have this many track violations in regular qualifying, the amount just carries on, if not gets higher in sprint qualifying, just because the qualifying time is essentially cut in half. You get an entire sprint qualifying done all 20 cars done and dusted and figured out in less than 45 minutes there is almost no time in between rounds and then you have to deal with the conditions and it's still hot it is still 40 something degrees track side the tires are barely hanging on but we're going to see what happens bottom five some interesting names some sad names some names that really shouldn't be there when it comes to one lap time speed A ton more track violations. Um, The person that I feel the most sorry for when it comes to qualifying on the hards is Logan Sargent. He had multiple track limit violations. He was trying his damnedest to get that Williams firing and to get it out of Q1. By the time Q1 was done, he had zero track time or lap time. He was doing laps. He was putting in time, but he broke so many violations that by the time he was done, he may have just stayed, he should have just stayed in the pit. Save the parts, save the fuel, save the stress, and just watch. It was such a bad weekend for him. I feel so sorry for him. But again, super fast track times, no drama. These guys were on rails, and they really have to pay attention to where the car is at this point. The guys who are leading, they're not blowing away Like track limit times. Their lap times are not astonishing. They're slowing down. They've adjusted. They've slowed down on the corners where they need to so they don't lose their track time. Some drivers that may not necessarily have the best cars, they're still pushing it maybe a little bit too hard to try to make it into Q2 and make up some kind of points for the weekend. Bottom five, uh, 16th, Lance Stroll. Good job, buddy. You made up one extra spot than you did the day before. 17th, Alex Albon, 18th, Yuki Sonoda, 19th, Kevin Magnuson, and then of course, 20th, Logan Sargent. Um, Williams have stated that they want Sargent back for next year. He does have a seat. I don't know how much of a good idea that is. Sometimes when a driver has, in my opinion, if you're having this bad of a season, the odds that it's going to get better the next season, about 50-50 shot. It's like having a bad employee You teach them at the very beginning and you teach them and you groom them and you teach them and teach them and teach them. At some point, either they get it or they don't. Either they need to stay or they need to go. And unfortunately for Logan Sargent, I think it's time for him to go. Sorry to say. Moving on, Q2, they're on mediums. Again, more track time, or track limit violations. Five drivers, seven violations. And it's guys that know better. Lewis Hamilton, two track time violations, two track times deleted. Leclerc, track time deleted. Joe Guan Yu, deleted. Sites, Lawson. These guys are just pushing it so hard that these track times are just biting them in the ass. At this point, it gets repetitive. And then I start to think to myself, which you might be doing the same thing, Is it the drivers or is it the track? Should they have left those corners as they were before for a very specific, obviously, for a very specific reason? And will they move them back if Qatar is on the calendar next year? Because this is ridiculous. This is absolutely obscene how many track time violations are out there. At this point, I don't think it's the driver. I think that to be a fast sport To be an entertaining sport and to be a competitive sport, you have to go fast. And sometimes just the littlest tweaks will just absolutely fuck some things up. And I think in this case, these little tweaks fuck some things up. I think they need to reevaluate where they change the corners. They need to put them back to where they were before. Give them that extra space that they had. Obviously, they need it for how wide the car is, for how heavy the car is, for how fast the car is. You still need that extra space to have a realistic turn at that speed. Uh, bottom five from there, Pierre Gasly was 11th. Lewis Hamilton, because he had two track time or track limit violations, two deleted laps, 12th for Lewis Hamilton, 13th for Bottas, 14th for Liam Lawson, and 15th for Joe Guan Yu. You can see the pattern. The drivers that have the more trouble with these track limit violations are the ones that are being kicked out in that qualifying time. A little odd to see Lewis Hamilton out in 12th, but. Some days just aren't those days, and it's only for sprint. It's not like it's the full race points that are up for grabs. Remember, in a sprint, the top eight get points, going from eight points all the way down to one. So, potentially, you're losing out on eight points, or you're losing out on one point. For Mercedes, at this point, is it that big of a deal? I don't think so. I think Mercedes is going to catch and pass Aston Martin anyways. So... Losing out on points for Lewis Hamilton for the sprint, where he's qualifying at the moment, probably not the biggest deal. Let me just correct myself there for a second. Losing points to Aston Martin because Mercedes is ahead of them. Not the biggest deal with Lewis Hamilton being in 12th and qualifying. Q3, moving into softs, again, ridiculously hot. Now, this is where, not unintentionally, but it doesn't happen very often. This is where all of a sudden you hear rumors and talk from, and not rumors, you hear talk from Pirelli going, yeah, Kate. So you guys may actually have to do a tire swap during Q3. And, I'm, and as a viewer, you're sitting there going, what? I'm trying to find the articles and I'm reading up on it as quickly as I possibly can. Comes out that Pirelli is concerned about the wear of their tires in these kind of conditions. 42 degrees, brand new track, high degradation high speed, Pirelli is legitimately concerned about the wear and tear and potential blowouts of their tires. This is probably the worst time for Pirelli to have this kind of issue. Pirelli's contract with Formula One is up in 2024. They hold the rights as being the only tire supplier to Formula One as they only have a one supplier contract in the FIA. This again opens up the conversation in my opinion going well maybe if you have two different tire manufacturers It wouldn't be as big of an issue as they would push themselves to create a better tire and one that has higher um, drive life and less degradation. But Pirelli's like, "Ah, you guys may have to pit. I mean, we're, we're confident that the tires were hold, but we're not sure the tires were hold, which adds another level of concern to the drivers where it's, Okay, do I give longer life to the tires, but maybe go a little slower and qualify a little bit lower? Or do I go balls to the walls, but for less time? I do one warm-up lap. I literally push the car and the tires to its absolute limit for one lap, get that time, and then just sit there and wait and hope that no one can catch me. I think that added a little bit more... It added a little bit more stress to qualifying that really needed to be keeping in mind that this is going to be your top 10 and only top eight drivers get points super fast more track violations as always as the weekend theme is but a little bit of a surprising finish by the time Q3 was done i give you your top 10 from 10 to 1 okay a little bit different but you'll see why 10th Acon 9th uh, Fernando Alonso 8th Checo Perez Really good lap time, really consistent. Again, he got caught out once or twice with violations and limits. So that's why he's down to eighth. Seventh is Halkenberg. Sixth is Leclerc. Fifth is Seitz, Russell is fourth. Top three. Third is Max. You're like, well, what are the two other drivers? I'm pretty sure you can figure it out. Lando Norris is second. Oscar Piastri is first. Oscar decided that this sprint weekend was the weekend he was going to make his statement. And this is the time that McLaren decided that they're going to pull out all the stops and make the big, we are officially here. I mean, they're not that far behind Aston Martin. They're in fifth with 172 points. Aston Martin's in fourth with 221. If they're going to make their move, they should start doing it now. And oh my God, is McLaren making their move and putting their stamp down on how the rest of the year is going to go. Amazing speed, not only did he out-qualify Max, but he out-qualified him by like two or three one-hundredths of a second, which in race world is an eternity and shocking that you're beating the two-time world champion out of sprint qualifying. Remembering for the sprint race, Max Verstappen only needs to play sixth or higher or Checo Perez needs to be able to DNF in the sprint race, Max will become the uh, third or the, the three-time driver's championship this weekend. Nine more track violations with the top three, or with the top ten racers. Nine. I took count. Over 30 track time violations this weekend. And some of these guys aren't figuring out they're getting track time violations until almost the next round. I said it before, I will say it again. It doesn't happen very often where this happens. But, they need to fix the track or they need to change the rule when it comes to track violations. Some of these guys are over by a millimeter, like a sixteenth of an inch, an eighth of an inch. Rules are rules. I understand that this rule is black and white. There is no fighting it, but I don't know how you would modify the rule on a track like this. Maybe you go, you get a couple more warnings, Before you get your track time deleted, maybe you create another color of lines where once you pass this, you're definitely getting a penalty where it's a little bit more of a gray area, or maybe they just move the bumpers and the track to where it was before. Now, you're changing the track again, and it's a multi-use track. You've got GP racing. You've got Formula One racing. You've got supercar racing on that track, but sometimes multi-purpose is not always a good thing. Sometimes too much of one thing or too much of too many things is a bad thing. I think the FI needs to go back. needs need to redo the track again, not pave it again, but just push those curbs out. just a little bit more, but those are your top 10 for what will be a very, very interesting 19 lap sprint race. So let's get into the sprint race right now. Uh, 19 laps of, in my opinion, absolute 100% chaos and excitement. And with all of these track limit violations, it would make this sprint race a little bit more unique than normal. A normal sprint race is hectic enough as it is with only one practice and some drivers not knowing the course or the the, the track and just the extra pressure of the points that are up for grabs for some of the lower end teams. Now throw in the fact that a lot of these guys are hitting their track time violations, which means their lap time is not going to count. Now in a race, If you go over the track limit so many times, you get shown a black and white flag. That's essentially a warning saying, hey, if you do this again, you're going to get a five-second penalty. Now, when you're in a sprint race, it's only 19 laps. It's 100K. You really cannot afford any kind of time violations, five seconds, 10 seconds, a crash, whatever the case may be. So these guys had that added pressure of you have to do this right, and you have to do it right the first time out. So... With that being said, fantastic start, super fast, Max Verstappen probably the worst start of the entire season. Now, he's not exactly been known for his, you know, spaceship speed starts this season. Last season was a little bit better. This season not so much and this probably had to have been the worst start that he has had, you know, since the beginning of the season. He loses three places right off the start and it's not because anybody boxed him out. It wasn't because anybody cut him off or made him go slower than he needed to be. That was all him from the beginning. He just could not get it done right off the start. But being the race and the time violations and the track being what it was, it wasn't very long before we had to wait for the very first safety car. And I mean, it's within the first two corners. Liam Lawson, a bit of an oops that he had this weekend, not very characteristic of his driving as of late. Uh, He ends up losing control. He ends up landing in the gravel safety car. He does not finish. No no contact from any other cars. Um, There was no obstacles. He didn't have to miss anything. He just lost control as it happens sometimes for the rookies and even for some of the veterans, especially when you take into consideration the track this time, again, hasn't been driven since 2021 when they finished paving it. So it's brand new, oily, and it just kind of got out of control from there. Only two laps for the safety car, which was fantastic. Just for how far Liam was off the track, he was close to uh, an emergency like exit or entrance onto the track. So it didn't take them very long to get the car off the out of the way. And when we started, Fernando Alonso, Norris, fantastic wheel-to-wheel racing. It was it was just it was fantastic to see. It was both drivers putting their car on the absolute limit knowing that they could lose position, lose grip, and potentially spin themselves out of the race at any moment. At the same time, you've got Oscar Piastri and you've got George Russell going battle to battle back and forth. This is not necessarily a combination that you normally see just because Max is normally so far out. But with Max losing his three spots, Russell jumps up, he's competing against Nora, or competing against Piastri, Norris is competing against Alonso, Alonzo made up five spots before the first corner. His grip was fantastic. He was on softs, so he had the grip. He was on the clean part of the track, and he just made it look effortless that he caught up to the top five. It was was fantastic to see. Uh, It didn't take us that much longer. Lap four, Logan Sargent spins out on the gravel. Same thing, not any kind of malicious contact. He didn't hit anything. It was just taking the apex of a corner combined with the really hot track, combined with uh, faster degrading tires, combined with the sand and the oil and all that kind of stuff that was on the track. And he just ends up spinning out the gravel on the side of this track. It's not like any other level on the grid or in the in the calendar. It looks to be that that gravel is probably, you know, five to six inches deep. It's meant to slow a car down that's going, you know, essentially out of control before it hits the barrier. It definitely does its job. It does its job very, very well. My only criticism, and it's not very much of a criticism, but the fact that as soon as you try to get traction again, there is no traction. The gravel is so light and fluffy, if you can call gravel light and fluffy, that the cars just sink. And because they're so low to the ground anyways, essentially they just end up beaching themselves. Which is what happened to Logan Sargent. Um, It's just a cap off to what is turning out to be kind of a half a season that he could definitely stand to forget. He had the, what would you call it? He had the patience from everybody on his team because he's a rookie. He's coming into Formula One. He has something to prove. And being the driver that he is, no one really thought he was going to make big splashes. So instead of just kind of running with that non-expectation and gradually getting better, he is trying his damnedest to really show that he needs to, or that he deserves to be back for the 2024 season. Unfortunately for him, sometimes he has these weekends where he looks like a worse driver than he is. It's not that he made a massive mistake, it's not that he is incompetent behind the wheel, he is far from it, but he's still learning, and he hasn't come across these kind of conditions before, with the temperature and the track and so on and so forth. So definitely a learning curve for Logan Sargent. Unfortunately, it just kind of caps off a beginning of the weekend that was not very enthusiastic or productive for him. So he ends up watching the rest of the sprint race from the paddock. Right after Logan Sargent loses control and he gets a DNF, you can see the shift in the way the drivers are all of a sudden attacking this course. It's a lot different than when you're on a qualifying lap And you're kind of by yourself and you're not really racing anybody, but you're racing the clock where all of a sudden you've got 18 cars, you've got 19 laps. So all of a sudden you still want to go as fast as you possibly can. because that's the mentality of a Formula One driver. But at the same time, you have to be safe with the combination of, again, coming back to the track, coming to the weather, you know, just how difficult this, this race and track can be. You can see more of a tactical downshift these guys are not blowing track times out of the water with the sprint race what they're doing is they're being more intelligent about when they try to pass when they want to use their drs and when they're backing off they're not diving deep down into the corners like you normally would see in any other course whether it's hot weather cold weather rainy anything like that they're hitting their brakes a few meters earlier than they normally would Because they know they don't want to lose control, they don't want to run into somebody, they don't want to wreck anything like that and end their chances for the extra points. Not forgetting that besides Red Bull winning everything this season, potentially, that the point differential from second to seventh is very important. So these sprint races will add the points that some teams may need to bump themselves up from the spot they're in to a spot higher. Essentially what the math goes is every time you go up a spot, let's say you go from six to seven, or you go from, sorry, not down, you go up, from six to 5th, your team is essentially gaining tens of millions of dollars towards the campaign for the 2024 season. So these points, I mean, if you gain tens of millions of dollars because you scored one position higher in the last sprint race or a second sprint race of the season, that's huge. So these drivers are taking these points a lot more seriously than they used to, especially at the beginning of the season, just because I don't think at that time they realized how important these points were going to be. So we're coming down to near the end of the race, or end of the the sprint lap 11. So restart was lap 6. We're going we're fast we're fast forwarding to lap 11. It's been a very smooth race, and we're going to remind you of some math because this is very very important. Max Verstappen needs to place 6th or higher in the sprint race to win the driver's championship or he needs Checo Perez to not finish DNF like or absolutely out of the points so top 8 he can't be it. lap 11 we've got Perez, we've got Alcon, and we've got Nico Halkenberg driving aggressively enough for a sprint race but not to lose control until someone decides to go three cars wide so Nico Halkenberg goes on the inside of the, the of the turn, and he ends up bumping Esteban Ocon, which spins Ocon into Checo Perez, takes out his entire side pot, like massive hole, puts Checo Perez into the gravel, puts him out. Ocon's out, Perez is out, and right there, lap 11. Folks, F1 fans, Max Verstappen, if you haven't seen it already, he is the 2023 driver's championship. He is a three-peat in both uh, categories. In driver's championship, Red Bull has won three years in a row. Max Verstappen has won the driver's championship three years in a row. As well as, Max Verstappen has also matched a record that has lasted for 40 years. It's been 40 years since a driver won a championship on a Saturday. These sprint races are a very new thing to the world of Formula 1, but it wasn't as always that Formula One was only driven on Sundays. That is, again, a our generation type thing. Uh, back in the 90s and 80s, they would drive four championships on Saturdays. And it's been 40 years since someone won the championship on a Saturday. So congratulations to Max Verstappen. Um, a little bit of a lackluster uh, way to finish, it seems, the last couple of years, especially last year with the point confusion on whether he had won or not, and then the way that he ends up winning this year. A little bit of a lackluster event, um, but it was a, um, not necessarily a foregone conclusion, but it was a statement. There was no confusion. Checo Perez is out. Lap 11, which means he does not finish the sprint race, and Max ends up, I think he ends up winning. I do believe he ends up winning the sprint race anyways, or at least he comes in the top three. So Max Verstappen automatically gets his points that he needs, and he becomes a 2023 Drivers Championship champion. With that conclusion finally wrapped up, the rest of the we get the restart after 14 laps or lap 14. So they pop it out. 19 laps were done. Now the drivers can focus on Saturday or on Sunday. Sunday is the big race. But because of what had happened in the sprint qualifying, in the actual sprint race, and because of the qualifying on the previous day, there were some new rules that were about to come out for race day. So let's get those. Let's get into those now and a few things that had changed from you know, Friday qualifying to Sunday race day. So let's get into that first. It's really odd to see that after a sprint race, someone gets penalized and it happens to affect them in the actual race itself. Obviously, you're going to get some people that are the first timers when this happens and they set the benchmark. Well, unfortunately for you Ferrari fans, Charles Leclerc, he ended up getting too many track time penalties uh, accumulated in the sprint, in the practice, and in the sprint qualifying. So essentially what the FIA has done is they gave him an automatic uh, five second penalty which knocks him out of the top ten. They applied these five second penalties to his starting grid, which I think is kind of unfortunate, but it drops him out of the top ten. So automatically Ferrari's starting on the back burner. All of a sudden they're starting behind. Come to find out race day that we now have Tire regulation changes, as well as Carlos Sites is not even going to start the race. And everyone's like, well, what happened? Why isn't is it a penalty? Is he sick? Is it anything like this? Turns out his car had a massive and I mean massive uncontrollable oil leak or fuel leak. This was not something that they were able to fix in time for the actual race and for safety regulations and for safety reasons. Obviously, they decided that Charles Leclerc was not going to start the race. So Ferrari's already on the back step as we start. Now, come to find out that Checo Perez will also start in the pit lane because he broke Park Firma, because he had so much damage to his chassis from the sprint race itself. The guys didn't wait long enough because they knew they wouldn't have time, the Red Bull Engineers, that they broke Park firma, So now all of a sudden that is a 10 second penalty. As well as they changed so many parts that he would be starting in the pit lane. So Perez and Ferrari already on the back tire are on the back foot. This is not exactly a wonderful start for them. Come to find out, on top of that now, and this is the real icing on the cake, is that uh, Pirelli had discovered that there were going to there were some micro deficiencies in the wall of the tires just above the Pirelli logo. Now they weren't necessarily sure on what would happen to these tires if the uh, defects got bigger and bigger because of there were so many safety cars during the sprint race that they weren't able to really judge the safety of the tires at this point. So they did a couple of things. One, they made the corners, they brought them in, the ones that we had all these troubles with. They brought them in another 83 inches, so it's a shorter corner, so it's not as much centrifugal force on the outside of the tire when they're making that turn as well as they also raised the bumpers to make sure the drivers would naturally slow down so they wouldn't wreck the tire as well as, and this was be a little bit more of a, um, a little bit more of a controversial take from some of the drivers and some of the teams is that Pirelli stepped in and they made a mandate on how many pit stops each team had to make. And they added a mandate on the maximum laps they were allowed to use their set of tires that were on the car. So for instance, Max Verstappen is driving, he has a brand new set of tires. He is only allowed to go 18 laps on those tires, and he has to change them. So it's an automatic pit stop, whether they agree with the strategy or not. Now, this is not on your 18th lap. Oh, you're past, You're on lap 18, and then you come in for your pit stop. Essentially, on your end of your 17th, beginning of your 18th, you have to go into pit lane before you start your 18th lap you have to get a new set of tires. Now this is across the board, no matter what. So automatically any kind of strategy that your team has for this race, it's gone out the window. The only difference would be is if you had an old set of tires or a used set of tires that you're going to say that you used from the sprint race. Okay. They're already worn in. They've got a little bit of traction. You still have to use three pit stops, but You can start on older tires, which leaves you newer tires for further on in the race. A lot of these teams did that. If they had an extra set of tires that they could use that they didn't destroy during qualifying, either of them or the sprint race, they were using this. But you automatically had to do 18 laps. The key is, on this one, if I chose to use an old tire, and let's say I have 8 laps on it, okay. It is not a brand new 18 laps when you start the race. If that, those tires that are used, that have more grip, if all of a sudden they have eight laps on them, I can only go 10 laps. So yes, you give yourself an extra set of tires, but at the same time, you're taking away lap distance that you have with the tires that you have. So what are you going to do? Which way are you going to push and pull? Some teams purposely, because there was rumors that this might happen, on the sprint qualifying day and the sprint race. There were some questions that we might they might end up doing this. So what some teams did is they took the set of tires and on their warm-up laps or on their, um, their discovery laps, because they had little tweaks on the course, they did two laps and then they swapped tires. They're used, but they're essentially brand new. So now all of a sudden you can go for 16 laps and you still have three brand new sets of tires. This is kind of the strategy that we're coming into now. And it's not like the drivers heard about this the day before, or they knew about it for sure at the beginning of the weekend. They found out four hours before the race started. The drivers, the teams, the team principals, everybody found out at the same time four hours before the race. So it's not like they got a ton of time to prep. It's kind of like, oh, okay, we have how many laps and how many sets of tires. Essentially, at this time, it's just really basic quick math. How many laps can you get done? How many pit stops do we have to do? Because you have to do three pit stops minimum. If you do four or five or six, totally up to you. But you have to do at least three just so the life of the tires is a little bit more in the safer area. So with all of that in mind, and with all of the new changes and the new regulations, let's get down to race day itself. And race day itself, ambient Air 40 degrees celsius these guys are absolutely cooking in their cars remember there is no ac yeah it's an open cockpit but they've got three layers of fireproof material between their skin and the temperature outside and that is how we're going to start round 18 the qatar grand prix 16 turns 5.4 kilometers top speed of 322 kilometers an hour and a blistering and very long 57 laps and let me tell you, this race did not disappoint from start to finish, essentially because we had a ton of team battles. For example, we're gonna, it starts right at the beginning of the race. Fantastic start from everybody. Everybody is on point. They're ready to go. Max Verstappen is first. He leads the race out, followed behind very, very, very closely. And I mean very closely and keep that in mind by the two Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton and George Russell going into the first turn. First turn, close your eyes, picture it this way. As I paint you this picture, George Russell is on your right-hand side. He's got the shorter inside corner of this turn, of the first turn. Lewis Hamilton on soft tires, he has more grip. He is coming up on the left-hand side of George Russell. He's taking the outside corner. He's taking that apex line, Max Verstappen's right in front. What's he going to do? Well, George Russell also needs to hit that apex. He does not push him off the road. It is not George Russell's intention to do anything but hit that apex. But Lewis Hamilton is making this decision all by himself that he's going to take this apex. He's essentially trying to force George Russell to take a shallower turn and lose position going into turn two. Because you're going to go from left to right. So if you go from the inside corner, all of a sudden you're the outside corner and you lose track possession. Well... Lewis Hamilton thought he could do it. He thought he had the space, and absolutely did he not. He ends up taking out his back rear tire on the front left-hand side tire of George Russell, and he blows it right off the rim. The rim's in pieces, absolutely demolishes George Russell's uh, front wing, uh, essentially the front front of his car, minus the tire, gives George a punctured tire as well, And Lewis Hamilton's out of the race. Just like that. First corner, first turn in the gravel. He's done. That's it. Game is over. George Russell does make it around with his leaking tire, makes it around the entire track. By this time, the safety car is out. He has to do a pit stop. So he gets a new set of tires, and he has to replace his damaged wing. He goes from second all the way down to 16th. Because remember, we have one car that didn't even start. So we don't have 20 drivers. We have 19 drivers. Now he's down to 16th spot. Horrible, horrible way for him to start. I don't think um, Hamilton should have done this, period, at all. I understand where he was coming from. He wants to take that inside line on the next corner. He wants to gain that space. Totally understandable. Wrong place to try that attempt. If you need to hang behind Russell for a corner or two, you do have the better tires on your car. Just give it a turn or two. Give it a corner or two. You're going to hit a straight stretch or you will move Russell where you want him to be so you can pass him. I think it was just a missed call by Hamilton. There wasn't anything malicious in this attempt. I don't think he tried to take his partner out, but instead he ends up taking himself out and in the process, taking himself out of the points race, because don't forget in the driver's championships, Hamilton is behind Checo Perez. They are very, very close. So in Hamilton's eyes, team orders are not team orders he needs to be ahead of Russell. Russell's in eighth, Hamilton's in third for the Drivers' Championship. He needs those points more than Russell does, to be totally honest. Now, that being said, Russell's also in a points battle with Norris. They're less than 10 points apart, so both drivers need as many points as possible, but at the same time, if you don't drive as a team, no one's going to get any points. And the disappointment didn't stop there. Driving along, everything's good. Everything, Everyone's keeping it within the track limits. There are no crashes, nothing along that line. Um, Nico Halkenberg all of a sudden finds out he's got a 10-second penalty. And we're sitting there going, well, watching the race, you're like, well, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't hit anybody. Normally, a 10-second penalty is incurred if dangerous driving. You force somebody off the track a couple times, two track violations, five seconds times two things of that nature, something that's a little more substantial, than you're just watching him going, well, he's not impeding. He didn't hit anybody. He's keeping it within the track limits. Why Why is he getting a 10 second penalty? Turns out that when there's an empty space on the grid, Carlos Sites didn't start because his car was leaking. You got to pay attention where you park the car, Nico, because essentially what Nico did is he unintentionally gave himself bonus spots by parking in Carlos Seitz's position. He took that empty spot, probably not, pay, obviously he didn't know, obviously he wasn't paying attention or he didn't realize where he was, but he essentially started the race in the wrong spot. They automatically gave him a 10-second penalty for that. Definite lack of judgment, nothing malicious, didn't try to sneak in a couple of extra positions. It was just one of those, you're getting ready for a race, you're concentrating naturally you queue up behind the driver ahead of you and then you just, he forgot that there was an empty space in front of him, but that's going to cost him 10 seconds. It was, it was embarrassing, but it was kind of funny at the same time. So while all of this is going on and they're clearing, and this is all happening while they're clearing the car off the track from Lewis Hamilton going off. So as this is all happening, all of a sudden the camera pans to the normal reaction. You try to see the driver's see if they're okay, you can see the damage to the car, they talk about the accident, so on and so forth. But the camera picks up something a little odd that you don't normally see anymore. It's Lewis Hamilton walking across the track to get to the infield to get back to Pit and to get back to his team, which is a no-no. You are not allowed to do that, obviously for safety reasons. There is camera footage of him being maybe four feet off the track on the intersection when George Russell passes behind him it was not a very intelligent move come to find out later Mac or uh, Lewis Hamilton is under investigation for unsafely leaving his car there was a technical term for it but I totally forgot he ends up with a official warning a couple of points on his license and a massive fine and essentially a don't do that again which is totally understandable you're upset and it seems to be this weekend brings out, or at least this race this year, is kind of bringing out the worst in some drivers. Lance Stroll again popping to mind with his little hissy fit that he's just getting out qualified and he didn't make it again and pushing his personal trainer. And now Lewis Hamilton making what I can only chalk up to is a rookie mistake, a frustrated decision of he knows better. You don't walk across the track when there's cars on a safety lap. You wait for the marshals to pick you up. They direct you where to go. Normally you just go on the outside of the fence. There's a little Vespa scooter and then you just drive back, but he didn't want to wait. He was annoyed. He was frustrated, rightly. So again, not making the best decision that you could possibly do, but maybe this fine will teach him to be a little more cognizant of what he's doing when he's done crashing. Thankfully, he, I mean, he didn't get hit. He didn't get run over anything like that. So it's just more of a reminder of, Hey, safety first. Outside of all of this drama, the race itself was fast, it was exciting. It was you don't it was one of those races you don't want to turn your eyes away from. If your phone, someone texts you, you don't want to look at your phone because you're going to miss something. These guys were absolutely on the edge. I have not seen, especially this year, this is now officially my top race for amount, amount of overtakes. And not just because you had the three different pit stops. It wasn't people gaining and losing spots because they had to go for a pit stop. Average pit stop length was like 21 seconds. Average actual pit stop from tire off to tire on, about 2.1 seconds. Um, Super, super fast. A lot of passing. Really great passing inside-outside battles. A lot of wheel-to-wheel battles. It is a... It looked like... Forty fifty-seven 57 laps of qualifying because of the pit stops. These drivers could drive harder. It reminded, I talked to a bunch of people that had watched it. Some of them that have watched more formula one than myself. And they said it reminded them of the formula one of the early nineties and late eighties, where you had fuel stops, you had more pit stops. So these guys drove a lot harder and a lot faster. And there was more on the line. It was more aggressive and action filled driving. I absolutely enjoyed it. Now, would it be something that these drivers would want to do every weekend? Absolutely not. A lot of these drivers, (laughs) they were complaining. And, you know, rightly so to a certain extent that they were not feeling well. Um, Unfortunately, there were a few drivers that were um, advising that we were really not feeling well. And the the pit crews were telling them, hey, it's totally up to you. If you want to stop, I mean, there's absolutely no... There's no blame, there's no hard feelings, you're doing the best you can. Uh, Esteban Ocon ended up throwing up during the race, although I don't know where he did it. He didn't throw up in his helmet. Uh, I, I think it must have been during a pit stop that the camera just didn't pick up, thankfully. Um, really good recovery from Esteban. I know myself, when I'm not feeling well, I'm not exactly wanting to you know jump up and jump into a Formula 1 car. A lot of guys, George Russell was seen going down the straight stretch, in ninth gear doing 315 kilometers an hour putting his hands on top of the steering wheel in the airflow trying to get some cooler and i'm going to use cooler with massive air quotations just trying to get some kind of airflow over him these guys were absolutely trying their damnedest and it's they were so hot they were so exhausted half of the drivers ended up going to the medical center for um observation due to dehydration they were just absolutely wiped. And to a certain extent, it, it's your job. You're getting paid millions of dollars every single year to race these cars. But at the same time, I felt sorry for them. I felt so bad for some of these guys. They were just wiped. So as the laps are ticking by, you're starting to think that, hey, these guys are staying within the lines. This is not going to be a race that is determined an hour hour and a half, two hours later, because of track violations, track limit violations. As there has been some this year and last year where hey, you're just about to talk to, you know, you go to work, you talk about it and all of a sudden, your notifications go off going, this person's lost five spots. This person's gained three spots, that sort of thing due to track violations. And you're just starting to think we're at lap 35, 36, we're going to hit 40. We're doing good. we got 57 laps. It's not that much more to go. And then all of a sudden, it just starts to come in. These guys are getting tired. The traction on the tires themselves, it's not where it needed to be. It's just a grueling race that needed to end sooner rather than later. And unfortunately, the track limit violations just started to pile up and pile up and pile up. But only for four drivers, which is a little odd. You've got a field of what is now 16 drivers because we've lost a few. And it's just losing more, losing more. Nico Halkenberg ended up leaving the race uh, a DNF due to damage on his car and he was just so far behind. He was exhausted. He had track time violations just before he finished the race. Now all of a sudden you've got Albon's picking up one here and then another one. Albon's got two. Gasly had an atrocious day. He had three track limit violations. So all of a sudden, that's 15 seconds tacked onto your time. 15 seconds. And don't forget, if you're racing and you have these violations, you cannot you can retire from the race, but they're just going to tack either that time on or give you a grid penalty the next race, which is what you do not want to happen when these teams are so close. So Gasly eats 15 seconds worth of time penalties. Lance Stroll, surprise, he ends up eating 10 seconds of track time penalties, but his didn't come to later on in the race. I will give him credit where credit is due. He had a solid race. Nothing exciting, nothing that would blow everybody else out of the water, but it was a consistent drive, which is what he needed. He got in the points, which is what his team absolutely 100% needed, or at least he thought he made it in. And then we come to the man with the most track limit violations that I have ever seen. And it is not exactly a highlight of his career, and it's not exactly a record that he wants to repeat. Checo Perez, six track limit violations. Six. That's, That's 20 seconds. 20 seconds of penalties. Apparently I can't do basic math. It's 30 seconds. 30 seconds of violation time. Like, dude, what in the hell are you thinking? It's a good thing that he was as far up the field as he was from his closest competitor by the time the race finished. Everybody had some kind of black and white flag or track limit violations, or at least warnings. Except for one guy, you have 20 drivers and there's one person that didn't exceed track limits, didn't get a warning, didn't get a penalty, because he did everything perfect this weekend. You can obviously guess who that's gonna be. Max, the three time drivers, champion, Max Freaking Stappen, Super Max, Super Max himself. He did the entire race without breaking any track limit violations. No warnings, didn't go out once. His tires stayed in the limit every single time it was that kind of weekend for him it was a championship weekend and he took the championship he won the race but not as much as you would think he only won it by about 3.5 seconds he had to do his third and final pit stop with about four laps to go they did push it to the very very end just so he could build up that gap between the cars that were behind him it ended up working out very well for him Red Bull also ended up pulling out a two-second stop for him as well, which definitely helps. When the guys are on point, the guys are on point. You help him win that championship, and he helps you win the dry, or Constructors' Championships. It's that give and take. It was one of those races that will be in my top favorite races of this year, and potentially, depending on how next season works out, it's going to be one of the top races of next year as well, in my opinion, looking back. Definitely top five in the last two years. It was just, it was fantastic. It was one of those races that I will definitely be watching. And I recommend you watch when, you know, you got a couple hours, you're doing housework. Put it on in the background. It is entertaining from the first time you see it to the 10th time you see it. Let's get into your top 10. With all of the track limit violations worked in there, this is your top 10. Max Verstappen wins. Oscar Piastri in second. Lando Norris in third. George Russell in fourth. Leclerc is in fifth. Alonso is in sixth. Esteban Ocon even with that 15 seconds, ends up in seventh. Valtteri Bottas finally scoring some much needed points in eighth. Joe Guan Yu scoring much needed points there in ninth. Checo Perez, even with all of these track time or track limit violations, still ends up in the top 10, ends up getting a single point. Just think of where he would have been if he didn't have 30 seconds worth of penalties. He would have been in the top five. That's how close everybody was. Drivers' championships, obviously Max Verstappen, three-time world champion with four hundred and forty-three points. Checo Perez, with his one point, gives him two hundred and twenty-four for second place. Lewis Hamilton, this is why he needs to stay as safe as he possibly can and just outdrive Checo. He's still in third with one hundred and ninety-four points. He is definitely not that far off. Uh, Fernando Alonso is in fourth now with one hundred and eighty-three points. Uh, Carlos Seitz is in 5th with 153. Leclerc is in 6th with 145 points. Lando Norris is in 7th with 136. Leapfrogs Russell who is in 8th with 132 points. Oscar Piastri leapsfrog Lance Stroll. He is now in ninth with 83 points. And Lance Stroll is in 10th with 47 points. Constructors Championship points. Red Bull highly in first. That's why they won it with 657 points. Mercedes is in second with 326 points. Ferrari is in third with 298 points. Aston Martin's in fourth with 230 points. Right on their heels now with a double podium is McLaren in fifth with 219 points. Alpine is in sixth with 90 points. Williams is seventh with 23 points. Alfa Romeo is in sixth with or is an 8th with 16 points. They leapfrog Haas, who is now in ninth with 12 points, and Alfa Atari is still holding up the basement with 5 points. Hey, someone's got to be there. Story of the race. You would expect me to say Max Verstappen, how he drove, how he won, how great he was. That horse has already been beaten to death without those phrases so many times. We're not going to talk about it. We know he dominated the season. My story of the race is McLaren running two three? With McLaren being in the top three for the sprint as well. McLaren, as of right now, and I said this before, they started as a bottom of the grid team. I would have realistically put them at seventh or Now, yes, they are coming up. They're in the top five. They're fifth now, two hundred and nineteen points. They are 11 points behind Aston Martin. Now, even with, or let's say, let's put it this way. Even if Lance Stroll was able to help Aston Martin gain points, the way that McLaren has upgraded, their drivers have matured, and the role that they're on, I do still think, I do hardly believe, and McLaren fans are going to love this, McLaren would still be 11 points behind Aston Martin. I still believe that McLaren is going to leapfrog Aston Martin next race for fourth in the constructors. They are on such a roll. The upgrades have worked perfectly. Their drivers are in their prime. They have signed drivers. They don't have to worry about their contracts. They don't have to worry about how well they are competing, if they're going to lose their job, if they're going to keep their seat, anything like that. They can concentrate just on driving. Lando Norris. Golden boy of McLaren, he's consistent, everybody loves him, his driving ability, top-notch. I think at this point, if things keep going the way they are, he is—he already has massive competition, I don't think he's going to be the number one driver in McLaren for very long. Oscar Piastri, oh my good God, he is having the rookie year, in my opinion, that you haven't seen since Daniel Ricciardo and since Max Verstappen, respectively. He is winning sprint races. Yes, it's not a Grand Prix win, but still he's winning the sprint race. His fourth ever and he won it. He is pushing Max the three-time world champion. He's he's two seconds behind Max. He's not 20 seconds. He's not 25. He's not 30. He's not a minute. He's two seconds behind him at the end of the race. Yes, in this instance, Lando Norris was given team rules that he had to stay behind Piastri. Granted, yes, Norris was the faster car this weekend, but the way McLaren is running is that Norris said, okay, team rules are team rules. You told me to not pass him. I'm not going to pass him. And I think the reason is not because that you want to give Piastri the points because he you think he deserves it or whatnot. I think it is because Lando Norris is a much better defensive driver than Oscar Piastri. He's still good, but he's not at that Norris level. So if all of a sudden you've got a flying Mercedes or a Ferrari or a Red Bull coming up behind you, or in this case, yeah, it would have been a Mercedes if you got George Russell coming up behind you, I have much more faith that Lando Norris would be able to fend him off than Oscar Piastri, and you don't want to lose those extra points. So you sacrifice a few points and a standing on the podium for the greater of the team which I think is the direction that they went at the beginning of the season, or at the end of this race, which is why they're having so much luck. The end of this season, constructors, they will be fourth. The Drivers' Championships, I can honestly see Norris passing Leclerc. They're only nine points apart. It's really not that far distance. Piastri, on the other hand, he's kind of in that grey area. Or he's kind of in that no-man's land. He's you know, 30-something points ahead of Lance Stroll. At that's in 10th. But he is also like 49 points behind George Russell in eight. So I think for driver-wise, Norris will pass Leclerc. But I think Piastri is not necessarily going to pass Russell, but he's going to get it much closer than you would normally think a rookie should be to a talented driver like George Russell. They're going to take their break. They're going to look over their upgrades. Mark my words, 2024 will be the year of McLaren. The way they're going, their trajectory that they're on. Unless they absolutely 100% fuck up the aerodynamics of the car and their upgrades, 2024 will be the year of McLaren. Will they beat Red Bull? I honestly don't know. It's going to be a 50-50 shot depending on how they come out of the gates. But if you stay on this trajectory that you're at, if they stayed at this pace compared to Red Bull, let's say there was another you know 19, 19 races this season, Red Bull would lose to a McLaren at least two more times. At least twice. Not two more times, they haven't done it yet, but they would lose to a McLaren at least twice. They're getting that fast. They're getting that consistent, and they're pushing Red Bull that much more. And with that... Folks, that is my final thought of the entire breakdown of the Qatar Grand Prix. I definitely enjoyed it. It is definitely one of those races that you want to remember. And now we get to move forward to personally one of my favorite races, if not my favorite race on the entire calendar. It is that time of year. Again, it is time for COTA, the Circuit of America. We're going to Texas. It is October 20th and 23rd weekend. Now. I did say that Qatar was the last sprint race of the year. I am absolutely wrong on this one. It is another sprint weekend in CODA, and it is definitely, definitely to our time advantage here in North America. Again, it's about damn time. And as always, when it comes to a sprint weekend, everything starts on Friday pre qualifying show. Our time is 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It goes from 2 till 3. Yay, it's about time. Uh, Pre-sprint show again is on Saturday. That is 3 o'clock our time. The sprint race itself is on Saturday at 4 o'clock local time. And then we get in to race Sunday. Now that I look at it, I'm getting so excited. I'm getting the times messed up. So let's try this again. Friday qualifying is 3 p.m. Sprint shootout qualifying is Saturday at 11:30 our time. The sprint race itself is 4 p.m. on Saturday. Race Sunday, the whole part that we want to look forward to. Race Sunday, we are looking at one o'clock. Pre-race show is at noon. I highly recommend watching it. It has been rumored that Daniel Ricciardo will make his you know return to Formula One at Coda. He's doing more simulation with uh, Alfred Tari this week. So it is not definitely confirmed that he will be in for the next race and Liam Lawson will be kicked back to be the reserve driver again. But it is highly likely that Daniel Ricciardo will be back for the Circuit of America. But we will definitely keep everybody updated. So that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed the breakdown of the Qatar Grand Prix. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I can't wait to talk to you guys on the next episode of F-101.